So uh, a couple of years ago, maybe like some of you, um, I got into uh, the show called The Mandalorian. Any Mandalorian Star Wars fans in the room? Anybody? Okay, okay calm down. Um, uh, and and if, you're not, if you're not a Mandalorian or Star Wars fan, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I guarantee you, you've seen this creature pop up on your social media timelines. It's like, what, you know, like you've seen this, you've seen it at Target, your kids want this doll, and you're like, did gremlins come back? Like, what is happening? You know what I mean? Like, this baby Yoda, what is this? And I know that's not his real name, so all you super fans, don't, don't leave our church. But, um, but the, the Mandalorian is a show. It's, it, it follows this, like, this soldier and this, this bounty hunter. I know, really Christian. And, um, and he, he's a Mandalorian. He's from the planet Mandalore. And, and what's, so, what's kind of captured my attention with this particular show is these Mandalorians, they have this, they have this code of ethics, this, this tradition these ideals that guide their thinking, their behavior, and ultimately a framework for all of their decisions. And no matter how seemingly counterintuitive or countercultural in this Star Wars world, the Star Wars world that they exist in, they have committed to this particular way. And they have this saying, they have this saying, and it just, it just kind of caught me. They, they say this to one another before they make a big decision, before they you know, uh, do something that seems kind of crazy, they look at each other and they just say, this is the way. And the response is always the same. This is the way. In other words, in other words, this is what we've committed to as Mandalorians. Like this is the best way. This might not be the most popular way, but this is how we do things. And, and even if you aren't like a, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't need to be a Mandalorian fan. Like, you know this, right? Like in your workplace, right? Like you've got a, a work culture and it's like, hey, this is how we do things, right? Mom and dad's like, you're not interested in how Susie's parents do things, right? In our house, this is the way. All of our educators that make up all of our churches, right? Come on, you've got a how we do things in my classroom, this is the way. And as you've seen it by now and guessed it by now, we're kicking off a brand new series today called This is the Way, where we are going to be exploring and unpacking together what it means and what it sounds like and what it looks like to follow in the way of Jesus. And we're going to be unpacking together the implication that when Jesus first invited his first disciples to be a part of what he was doing, before he invited them to believe, he invited them to follow. That Jesus's invitation to his first century followers was not just to believe something, but he was inviting them into a way of doing things, a way of living, a way of ordering their lives around his kingdom values that he came to establish. And so the hope for the next few weeks of the series is to take the idea of following back to its first century roots and together recapture what it means to follow in the way Jesus. And kind of the, the tension for today and kind of the tension we're going to be wrestling with throughout the course of the series. And if you've been around a church for any amount of time, this won't be an entirely new idea to you. But here's kind of the tension I want to wrestle with today. And it's this, you can be a Christian and not follow in the way of Jesus. And, and, if, and if you are a Christian and that makes you uncomfortable, just, just stick with me for a second, lean into that. And if you're not a Christian, you're just like, yeah, so I don't like you guys. Um, you 
You can be a Christian. You can believe that Jesus died and rose for your sins and you've been baptized and you are a Christian, no doubt. Like eternity secure, but not follow in the way of Jesus. And to kind of bring this to light for us, what the first century believers called themselves, I think is revealing and so telling and clarifying and brings to light how this tension can actually exist. The first ever Christians that we see in the book of Acts, the book of Acts is right after the gospels in our New Testament. And it gives us the history of the explosion of the early church after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in Acts, the first ever Christians, they did not call themselves Christians. In fact, Christians were called Christians by those outside of the faith. In fact, the term Christian historically, it was a political term more than a religious term. It literally means those belonging to the party of Jesus. That in the first century, this, this group of, 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 of people that followed this resurrected Messiah and they lived differently than the rest of the world, they'd become a prominent enough group of people that they needed to be identified. And so they were pegged with the name Christian. It shows up three times in our New Testament and every time in a negative context. What believers in the first century called themselves was this, followers of the way. In fact, the Apostle Paul, you, you all know, even if you didn't grow up in church, you've heard of the Apostle Paul, right? Super influential Christian, planted churches all over the known world in the Mediterranean rim, wrote over half our New Testament. In Acts chapter 24, he's been arrested, right? The, the high priest is so sick of all that Paul is doing in the name of Jesus. And so he's, you know, defending his charges and he's looking at the, the high priest and Governor Felix at the time, who's been appointed by Rome to kind of keep the order in all of Judea and, you know, in Israel. And the Apostle Paul says this, look, However, all the things that you've said I've done, I haven't done. However, if I'm guilty of anything, I admit that I do worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. If I'm guilty of anything, it is certainly that. That this is how they identified themselves all throughout the book of Acts. And this particular phrase here, this Greek word, the way, it literally means a teaching in the most comprehensive sense. Or uh, another definition for that word is this, a whole way of life. Don't miss this. For the earliest Christians, following Jesus was not just belief to get into heaven. It was a way of life that impacted every single area of their life here on earth. To follow the way was to follow a way of doing things, not just believing. It was following a way of life defined and and reflected and depicted by the very life of Jesus who invited us to establish his kingdom values here on earth. It was a way of being, a way of doing and serving, loving and becoming. And if we're just being honest, and I'm I'm, I'm guilty of this too, so don't don't get mad at me. But the idea of following Jesus today has become really cliche. It's what you would call cultural Christianity. And if I'm just, just, again, I'm I'm guilty of this too, okay? We've reduced the idea of following Jesus just down to a set of beliefs. The idea of following Jesus has been reduced more to a personal belief statement rather than a personal mission statement. It it often talks about more of what we believe than a this is how I live my life statement. 
following Jesus, me too, has been reduced to the consumption of church a couple times a month at best, catching up on the podcasts, on sermons, dabbling with the scriptures. And even if you're fully committed to all of those things, we so easily forget that every single one of those are just a means to an end of becoming a better follower of the way of Jesus. And, and let me just, let me bring this tension to life for us in a way that we all can understand, right? You can be convinced of something, but not committed to it. We experience it all the time. You can be convinced of the benefits of something, that something is true or good, but not committed to doing this. And just take it out of the realm of faith. We all get this, right? Like you can be convinced and you are. Eating healthier is good for you, but Chick-fil-A is gooder for you, <laughs> right? Come on. You can be convinced that flossing is good for you. But when you go in for your cleaning, you are stressed because you're about to get shredded on the way in, right? You can be convinced that more sleep is good for you, but you watch Netflix until it asks you if you're still watching. You can be convinced that budgeting is good for you and it's important to to stay away from frivolous spending, yet you do the thing that is most dangerous to all checking and credit card accounts. You walk into Target without a list, (laughs) right? You know this. You can be convinced of something, that it is good, that it is beneficial, but not committed to letting it impact your direction and your actions. We live in this tension all day long. And it is that very tension that describes, that kind of gives us a picture. You can be a Christian and you can believe in Jesus and your eternal security, final and complete, but fail to be committed in every area of your life to the way of Jesus. I'm just telling you, that would have been such a foreign concept to the earliest followers of Jesus, It would have been such an alien idea. And even today, the, the idea of following, the word following, it's become an indispensable part of our culture with the resurgence. It's been seen a resurgence because of social media and how we can follow people, right? Even the idea of following, it's such a fluid concept in our culture today, right? You can follow people you know, people you don't know. You can follow celebrities you're never gonna meet. You can follow based on your preferences. You can follow based on what you like. You can unfollow based on what you don't like. You can unfollow when you don't like something. You can unfollow when someone offends you. Following is so fluid. But when Jesus extended the invitation to follow, there was nothing fluid about it. In fact, it was tangible. It was literal. And as we're going to see, it was all consuming. And this is so so important. Following Jesus is not less than belief, but it is is certainly more. And if we are to take the teachings of Jesus seriously, it is certainly more. Which is like, and you've seen this, you've seen this. This is not new for most of you. It's why his invitation to his first followers wasn't believe in me. It was follow me. Literally, you've seen this, right? Matthew chapter four, verse 18, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. And Matthew goes on to tell us. So Jesus looked at him and said, hey, come follow me and I'll make you and I'll send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their profession, they left their nets, they left their boats and they followed him. 
Going on from there, Matthew tells us, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, taking on the family trade, because their dad was a fisherman, so they became a fisherman. And Jesus called them. And immediately, immediately, right there in the moment, it, there wasn't any question, it was right there in the moment, they left their boat and their father, and they followed Jesus. And just a little while later in Matthew chapter nine, the very same Matthew that wrote the gospel of Matthew, we read this as Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus invited him. And what did he do? He got up, he quit his job. He quit his job. He quit doing the thing that he did for a living and he followed Jesus. That we know Jesus today as Messiah, as the Christ, as the risen savior. But when he first stepped onto the scene into the first century, and certainly when he extended this invitation, he had a different title. He would have been known as he taught in the synagogues and spent some time in the temple courts as a rabbi, which is just Hebrew for teacher. And so when Jesus invited these disciples to follow him, he was inviting them, yes, to be a disciple, but maybe even a more helpful word, he was inviting them to be students. Because just like rabbis before Jesus and just like rabbis during the time of Jesus, every rabbi had students. Students that they were in charge of teaching. And to fully understand to fully understand the significance of this rabbi-student relationship and its implications for us, a little bit of historical context is in order. So let me give you a little bit of background around the Jewish educational system that had three tiers, okay? So during the time of Jesus, the first tier was called Beit Sefer, okay? Which means house of the book. And this was typically Jewish boys ages six, six to 10. They would go to grade school at the synagogue and they'd learn their reading and writing and their arithmetic. And then they'd also memorize Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Are you kidding me? My kids sing baby shark. You know what I mean? So they, they would memorize Genesis to Deuteronomy, the whole thing. And then after, a, after Beit Sefer, most of the students would then just go back home and take on the family trade. If your dad was a fisherman, you'd go be a fisherman. If your dad sold stuff in the market, that's what you would go do. But then the students that showed promise, the ones that were kind of at the top of their class in Beit Sefer, they would go on to what was known as Beit Talmud, which was house of learning. And this was ages 10 to 14. And they would study, so they already had the, the law memorized, Genesis to uh, Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Then they would jump into Joshua to Malachi. They would dig into it, memorize most of it, if not all of it, all the history and the prophets. And then in Beit Talmud, they would learn the art of, ask, of answering a question with a question, right? You see this all the time with Jesus. Oftentimes his answer to a question is another question. It was here that they would start to learn this practice. And then the best of the best, like the top of the top of the top of the class, the Harvard boys, this certainly would not have included me, would go on to bait Midrash. This literally means house of study, ages 15 and up. And in this level of education, these students would get the potential to study under a rabbi. And a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, they would come and they would grill these students. They'd grill them questions about Torah, about the law, deciding whether or not they knew enough and had enough potential to maybe be a rabbi one day. And if a rabbi found them to be smart enough and enough potential, just like Jesus, they would extend the same invitation. Come follow me. 
Come learn from me. This was a huge honor. Only if a select few would get the opportunity to do it, and they quite literally followed their rabbi. And I know I told you student is even like a better word than disciple, but an even better word than that. The Greek word for disciple, if you were to look it up in Greek dictionaries, the most comprehensive word for what this really meant and what is actually happening here is this word. It's the word apprentice. That when these students were invited to follow a rabbi, the best word to describe what they were doing was they were being an apprentice of their teacher. You know this, right? Like a stu- an apprentice is one step behind, but beyond, excuse me, an apprentice is one step beyond a student. You can be a student and not be an apprentice. When I was at the University of Georgia, I was a finance major. Don't ask me how I became a pastor. And so I was a finance major and I would sit in a lecture hall of 300 people in accounting. I was a student of accounting. I was not an apprentice of my accounting professor. But when I worked at Chick-fil-A in high school, and the milkshakes came out for the first time, and we got our milkshake machines delivered to each store, I was an apprentice of my manager teaching us how to do what they did. A student can learn for learning's sake and for knowledge's sake, but an apprentice, so important, an apprentice learns in order to be just like. An apprentice learns from their teacher in order to do, to think, and to be just like their teacher would do, think, and be. And this was the ultimate goal of an apprentice of a rabbi, to become like their rabbi in every conceivable way. It was their only job to be a carbon copy of their rabbi. The aim was to be with 24-7, to look like and to do as they did. They followed him everywhere. They had meals with them. That was all that they did, learning, soaking up in order to be just like. In fact, there's a legend, and we don't know if this is totally true, but historical legend would even tell us that if a rabbi walked with a limp, you'd see his healthy disciples following him with a limp. Next time Andy sprains his ankle, you're gonna see all the lead pastors kind of like walking behind him, you know? Because the goal was to be just like. In fact, there was a common blessing of the day that that these young apprentices would hear. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Back in the first century, um, paved roads were very rare. It was usually reserved for major wealthy cities. And so the idea is this. As you followed your rabbi on those sandy roads, May you follow so closely that when the dust get kicks up from the back of their sandals, by the end of the day, you're covered in it because you followed so closely. And it is within that educational and cultural context that Jesus said, come follow me. And while our culture today is different, neither the invitation nor the goal has changed. And Jesus's teaching is clear. I'm not inviting you into just something to believe. I'm inviting you into a way to follow. To follow Jesus is to order your life around the way of Jesus. To order every avenue and category and section of your life, a whole way of life around the very way of Jesus. 
and, 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 you, and you, you, can't, you can't miss this. Right after Matthew chapter four, when Jesus invites his earliest disciples, what comes right after Matthew four? Not a trick question. Matthew chapter five, right? Which is Jesus' most comprehensive teaching for what life looks like in the kingdom that he came to establish. It's his most comprehensive teaching right there in one section about his way that he came to model and then call his followers to follow. He taught them the best way to be human on earth. Before Jesus ever told his disciples, I am the way, he taught and showed them the way to experience the life he promised. Dallas Willard is a, was a brilliant uh, American philosopher and Christian theologian and thinker, and he wrote this about kind of surrounding this idea. Dallas wrote this in a book called Living in Christ's Presence. He said, many people think of Jesus as our savior, which he is, as the one who will get us into heaven, which he certainly will. So the question often is, have I accepted Jesus as my savior? Not a bad question, but Dallas goes on to say, but we never ask the question, have I accepted Jesus as my teacher? This is so powerful. And that's the real question with the disciples. It began there. They began by accepting him as their teacher. And then, Dallas writes, accepting him as their savior, which included, of course, their eternal destiny was an, a natural overflow of that. But they started with Jesus. They started with Jesus as their teacher because we all have to learn how to live. And so Jesus invites his first followers and said, I'm gonna show you what my kingdom looks like. So what did he do in Matthew chapter five, verse one? He taught him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and then his disciples, not the same as the crowds. You had the crowds of people that were maybe curious, trying to figure this out. And the disciples that actually followed came to him and he sat down just like a rabbi would do in a setting of a teacher. And he began to teach them about his way. In the Sermon on the Mount, if you've never read the Sermon on the Mount, it is so worth going. We don't have time to read every word of it, but I'm gonna give you the highlights. He kind of gives this intro, right, known as the Beatitudes. And then he tells them, hey, listen, before I get into all the practical nature of what life in my kingdom looks like, this will be the result. I'm just telling you, you will be salt. You are to be salt of the earth and light of the world. That You are living the way that benefits the world and reflects glory back up to your heavenly father. Then he gets into practically what it looks like. And if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, over and over and over again, Jesus uses this phrase, You've heard it said. You've heard it said that. Translation. Other rabbis have taught you. Other teachers have taught you. But I'm going to teach you my way. So you've heard it said. You've heard it taught, do not murder. But my way is this. Do not even be angry in your heart with another. Hey, you've heard it said You've heard other rabbis teach you, do not commit adultery. But my way, my way, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. You've heard it said, you've heard it taught, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But my way is this, you turn the other cheek. If somebody forces you to go one mile, you go two. And that is straight out of the Chick-fil-A employee handbook. 
I'll take three sauces. They give you seven, right? This is my way. You've heard it taught and you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But my way, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Hey, when you give to the needy, don't do it like you've seen some of your teachers in a way that makes their name big. No, I want you to go do it in secret because the heart is what matters the most. This is my way. Hey, when you pray, don't go on praying like you've seen some of your teachers pray that go out the, in public in the, in the temple courts and use big religious words to impress people. My way is this. I want you to get into a private space and pray to your heavenly father. Hey, I don't want you to live your life storing up treasures for yourself in heaven. No, 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 I want you to live generously, being a good steward of that which you've been given. I want you to store up treasures in heaven, not here on earth where moth and rust destroy because your heart will follow where your treasure is. This is my way. Don't ever let money or things be your master. He says, hey, my way, I know you've got some teachers that are all about paying attention to the speck in other people's eyes, but my way is this. Before you worry about the speck in your brother or your sister's eye, I want you to pull the plank out of your own eye. This is my way. And then and he sums it up in Matthew chapter seven, verse 12. Kind of gives the bottom line, the big idea. He says, so in everything, in everything, in every conceivable area of your life, let me just sum it up for you. The golden rule, you've seen this. Some of you are like, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Right here. Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This sums up the way for my followers. And at the very least, even if you aren't one, the best way to be human. There's other teachers that have taught you things, but I'm here to tell you my way. And Jesus, with what he says next, makes clear, it's not just a way. It is the way to experience the life that you ultimately want. So Jesus gives this teaching, and then he's landing the plane in the very next verse here in in chapter 7, verse 13. It's getting to the end of his sermon, right? It's getting emotional. Peter pulls out his piano, and he starts playing like soft music right under the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus, the master teacher, closes with these consecutive images that drives home his point. He says, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to enter through the narrow gate. And they would have thought, sorry, I was tracking with you, but enter, what does that mean? Jesus goes on, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many will enter through it. But small is the gate, small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only few will find it. He says, I want you to enter through the small gate. What does that mean? It's an invitation to follow him. And this, road, this word for road here, the Greek word, it is the exact same word for way that Paul used in Acts 24. So entering through the small gate is, hey, I want you to come follow me. And I want you to follow the narrow way, the narrow road. In other words, the process of ordering your life around mine. And so Jesus says, look, you've heard some teaching, but I'm just telling you, there are two ways that you can live your life. There are two paths that you can follow. There's the wide gate and the broad road, and it's gonna be more popular. Come on, you know this. It's gonna be more popular. 
And sometimes it might even feel better, seem better on the surface. It might feel more fulfilling. It might seem easier, more convenient. But that wide gate and that broad road is one where self-gratification happens at the expense of anything or anyone The broad road and the wide gate is when you allow your desire to be king no matter how it affects anybody else. It's when the accumulation of stuff becomes the end goal of your life to try to be satisfied. It's when we seek revenge. It's when we try to get even. It's when, we've talked about this before, gross, dark religiosity breeds self-righteousness and we start to think we're actually better than other people. And Jesus is saying, that broad road, I'm just telling you, many are gonna find it and it's gonna lead to nothing but destruction. And we're gonna see this in the coming weeks of the series. That's not a threat of destruction. Jesus so often does this. He's just telling you how life works. That that broad road, a better translation for destruction is ruin. That broad road and that wide gate, I'm telling you, it's gonna be tethered with regret and pain and broken relationships, a lack of purpose, a lack of fulfillment, and you're left even at best trying to earn right standing before God. Jesus says, I'm just telling you though, there's another way. And yes, the gate is smaller and the path is narrower and few will find it not because it's not available to them, but because it will be the road far less traveled. But I'm just telling you, on that narrow road is the road to life. And don't miss this, not just eternal life, that's true, but it's bigger than that. It's life now. It's a life marked by peace, love, deep-seated joy in any circumstance. A life defined by self-control where you're no longer left wondering, I can't believe, why did I do that again? It's a, it's a road marked with hope no matter what you're facing. Where you can experience purpose, a road with fulfillment and contentment and healthy relationships and thriving marriages and restored relationships and store, restored marriages, a flurring faith and even the rooting out of your sin that consistently makes you wonder, why did I do that again? Jesus is saying, I'm just telling you, you follow on the narrow path that's gonna lead to life. The life, come on, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, the life that you ultimately Want the full life that Jesus promised. And what he's telling us, you don't get the full life that I've promised just by believing in me. It's by following in my way. And it's not always gonna be easy. You read the Sermon on the Mount. Come on, you know, there's gonna be moments where it's gonna feel countercultural, counterintuitive, and even counterproductive. Come on, being an apprentice of Jesus or sugarcoat it, right? If you are to order your life around his in every situation, in every relationship, in everything that you do with your finances, with your thinking, with your time, submitting your desires and your wills, that's not always going to be easy. It's gonna be hard, come on. Telling someone else what to do with your money, someone else telling you to love your enemies, to pray for those who hurt you, to pray for those that hurt someone that you love, forgiving someone that hurts you, come on. Self-sacrificial love where you put your wants and your desires second, deferring to your spouse over and over and over, rooting out the gross parts of your heart that you just want to kind of keep shut, turning on cheek. Come on, we can go on and on. It's hard, but Jesus is saying, it is the way to life. And then in case they missed it, 
He gives two more images to drive home the point of what the result of that narrow way is. And immediately after this, he contrasts two trees. One tree bears fruit and the other doesn't bear fruit. In other words, one of the trees is alive and bears good things and the other doesn't. And then, and you've all heard this, he closes his entire sermon contrasting two different types of builders. And he says, the one who puts into practice what I've taught is like a wise person that built their house on a solid rock foundation. And when the storms came, it did not see destruction. But the person, the person that hears my words and does not do anything with them, does not put them into practice, is like a foolish builder that built their house on a sand. And when the storm came, when life happened, its destruction was complete. Again, not a threat, just how life works. And Jesus who started out as a rabbi, we know did not stay one. He was not just a rabbi. Here the Messiah, the son of God, making his message clear. If you want your life, come on. If you want your life to bear much fruit, if you want your life to resemble one whose life is built on the rock foundation of Jesus, if you want to experience a full life, it's not always going to be easy, but a full life then enter through the small gate and follow the narrow way. Not only believing in me as savior, but following me as your teacher. This is the way. So what do you do with that? Here's what I'd say today. And we're gonna pull out the practical implications in the coming weeks. Today, I just want you to start where you are, not where you think you should be. A room this size and everybody tuning in, right? You're in a number of different places. You might be curious. You're unsure of what you do or don't believe about Jesus. If you're being honest with yourself, you might even say you are convinced about who Jesus is. But if you're just being honest, don't, don't raise your hand. You're just like, yeah, there's some areas I'm not committed. And there might be some of you that say, hey, you know what? No, no, I, I am committed, but I've probably got a little bit of work to do in other areas. Wherever you are on this kind of spectrum as it relates to how you relate to Jesus and his way, I wanna give you two things that every single one of us can do. And the first is if you're curious, I want you to stay curious. Not forever, but I want you to keep on being curious. I want you to go in this weekend. I want you to go read the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to pick a gospel. Mark, shortest one, easy, right? Cheat code. Go read the gospel of Mark. Read about the life of Jesus. In fact, if you had a friend invite you to church and say, hey, why don't you come sit with me and you sat with them, ask them some questions about what you've got. In fact, just like Jesus's earliest followers did, why don't you try to put into practice some of the things that Jesus taught? Even if you're not sure you believe, take Jesus upon his word and see what fruit might be born of your life. In fact, if you're part of our church, we have an incredible environment called Starting Point, which is a place for you to ask any of your questions and bring any of your doubts as you try to discover a faith of your own. So maybe you can ask about Starting Point, but I want you to stay curious and keep asking questions. And then, if you'd say you're convinced, 
but can be better at the committed part. And come on, if you're committed, you know you've got room. I've got to. Here's what I want us to do. It's time to get dusty. Come on. Where are you not following? What area of your life have you just kind of left here? What part of your faith has just kind of become cliche or cultural Christianity? And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I get it. I'm just a subject to falling into that, and I do at times. Come on. What area have you just been like, all right, I'm going to follow here, but I'm going to leave this area untouched? Is it the love that you show in certain relationships or don't show? Come on. Is it you needing to pull the plank out of your own eye rather than turning your nose up at the speck? of dust in somebody else's eye? Come on, is it you getting better at living a self-sacrificial life where your desires are second for the benefit of other people, no matter what it costs you? Because that's what love is. Where can you fall better? Come on, can I, is it in the air of your finances? Come on, are you storing up treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy? Are you investing in something bigger than you? Do, do you have a plan to support your local church financially, whichever church that might be? Come on, come on. What are you storing up? Are you, are you following? Where can you stop just believing in Jesus and commit to the way of Jesus? And just to be clear, believing in Jesus' name is how you become a Christian. I'm not trying to teach you that you got to do something to earn right standing for God. But I do want to be clear. Following in Jesus' way is how you be a Christian. This is why I love the mission of our church. It's to inspire people to follow Jesus. Do I want you to believe? Yes. Is it enough for your eternal security? Yes. Will it get you to heaven? Yes. Do you have to do anything else to earn right standing or love or grace from God? No but I don't want to be just a believer. And I don't want you and our church to be full of just believers. I want to be a follower. And I want our churches to be full of followers that experiences the full life that Jesus came to offer. I want us to be full. I want our church to be full of followers that actually make a difference in the world. I want us to be followers that create space for Jesus to make us look more like him. I want to be a group of followers that establish his kingdom values here on earth. I don't want to be believers that treat earth like a waiting room for heaven, but followers that show the world what heaven will look like. So come on. Don't you? If not, what are, we, what are we doing? Because the Savior of the world has invited us to not just believe, but to follow as an apprentice, ordering our lives around his way. And the end result is life and a difference in you and in the world around you. In the next couple of weeks, as we continue to dig deeper into this conversation today, I just want you to start with where you are, not where you think you should be, and then wrestle with what it looks like to stay curious 
and what it might look like to get dusty. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you that he, yes, came to save us, but he came to show us a way to experience not an easy life, not a perfect life, but a full life. So Lord, I pray that you would give courage to the people listening to this today. I pray you would give them the courage to ask the hard questions, to dig into the depths of their life and ask, okay, am I being an apprentice or not? Am I really following or am I just fallen into believing? I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage and the foresight to be a group of people that follow. Not just for the sake of our hearts, but for the sake of our families and for the sake of the world and the sake of our influence and the sake of our relationships. Lead us and may we continue to grow in your grace to be better followers. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.